Thank you, music team, and thanks, John, again for your prayer and pointing us to the righteousness of Jesus. I love the smell of imputed righteousness in the morning, don't you? We can easily boil down, I think, our approach to life in one of three kind of big bucket approaches. We can do the look-in approach or the look-around approach or the look-up approach. Now, what do I mean by each one of those ways to approach life? Well, the look-in approach would mean that we turn in and we look at ourselves. We do the hard work of discovering who we are, what we want to do with our lives. And after doing that, we look around uh, to friends or family, colleagues, co-workers who will support this version of ourselves that we have chosen for ourselves. And then if we feel a need for some sort of spiritual dimension of our lives, then we might look up to God or a higher power in order to have something more transcendent to add. And if you're thinking, that sounds a lot like Western culture today, you would be right. I think that is the dominant way of thinking in our Western society today. We start by looking in, and then we look around to see who will affirm us in our self-pursuit, and if we need some transcendence, we'll tack on some spirituality to it. The second approach would be to look around. Now, this would be more dominant maybe in Eastern cultures, where tribe and family and community are more central. In fact, many of those cultures would look at America and say, you're way too individualistic, which we are. You tend to start with you, we start with we. So the look around approach would be to look around at the community that you're in, the family, the country, the culture, to tell you who you are and what your purpose in life is. And then you look up to whatever sacred order your culture would subscribe to, and then you connect that to the people around you and the ancestors who have gone before you. And then finally, you look inside as you come to terms with the person that you are in relationship to the community that you belong to. And this is a widespread way of thinking, I believe, in other parts of the world and has been the dominant view of most people, I think, throughout human history. But then there's a third way, which is to look up. And of course, if looking in is starting with ourselves and looking around is starting with others, then looking up would start with God. You would look up first to Him in order to see what God says about you and to better understand His divine design for us. And then we, by looking up, we are putting God first. We are prizing and prioritizing His creator authority over our lives. And God, not ultimately us or even our community, is the one who defines us and our purpose. But it's God himself who defines us. After looking up, we would look around to the community of faith that is called to walk alongside of us and cheer us on and correct us and love us as part of the family that looks up to him together. And then we look inside and see how God has individually sort of wired us to live out his calling and to be the sort of kingdom citizens that he would have us to be as he conforms us to the image of his son together. And that's the biblical way of seeing life. God first, others second, and then ourselves third. And that is not demeaning ourselves. That is actually the path to finding ourselves. Jesus said, he who saves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. You'll find your life in the loss of your life. Not literally physical death, 
but the loss of your authority over your own life and your willingness to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And it's as we do that that Jesus directs us outward. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, around 15 years old, I was, you, you no doubt from listening to my sermon, says, that guy likes acronyms. He likes to alliterate. Well, I learned it as a young disciple of Jesus when an older dentist helped me understand some basics of the Christian faith, and he gave me all these different acronyms. He gave me grace. What, what's grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. What's faith? For all I trust him. And he just gave me these acronyms that have stuck with me for what, I don't know how old I am, almost 30 years now. And one of them that I distinctly remember is joy. Jesus, others, you. And it's that sort of approach that I was talking about here just a moment ago when we talk about the look up approach. It starts with Jesus, it start, then it goes to others, and then it goes to you. Well, interestingly, as we come to chapters 27 and 28 in 1 Samuel this morning, we're going to see all three approaches to life play out in David and Saul. We're going to see David look in first and sort of try to strategize and figure out what he should do. We're going to see Saul look around. And then Samuel's going to come on the scene at the very end again. I know he's dead. Weird scene. We'll explain it as we get there, I hope. But Samuel comes on the scene and he looks up. So we're going to see a looking in example with David, a looking around example at Saul, and then a looking up example with Samuel. So first of all, how do we approach life? How will we turn, who will we turn to for guidance? These chapters give us the only, really, the only real three places you can look, and we need to be careful which way we look. First of all, we can look in and listen to ourselves like David. We can look in and listen to ourselves like David. We left off last week with David being tempted, remember, to take matters into his own hands several times. First of all, with Saul, and then secondly, with Nabal, and then thirdly, with Saul again. He's given the opportunity to take Saul's life twice, and he refuses to do so because Saul was the Lord's anointed. David knew it was not his place to take the kingdom by force. He had this great confidence that God was going to deliver him into the kingdom of Israel himself and that he didn't need to sort of manipulate the circumstances to make that happen. And then we come to chapter 27 and we read verse 1. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. What? David, are you a schizophrenic and so are you? It seems like he's going back and forth and wavering between faith and fear and a lot like us, huh? David is convinced that he will eventually meet his death at the end of Saul's spear, even though he's been delivered time and time again from that very spear. Despite being told repeatedly that he would be king by God's own prophet, no less, Samuel, and reasserting his confidence multiple times in the Psalms that we considered for seven weeks, Nevertheless, in these moments, his assurance that he will be king and not die by the hands of Saul begins to waver. Now, why? Why is his assurance beginning to waver? Well, I think we could slip something in that's not directly in the text, but is in previous passages that would help us. First of all, he's a polygamist. When he is compromising sexually, he's going to be again compromising in terms of his own faith because that's the way it works. You can't compromise ethically and keep your doctrinal 
standards intact. You will eventually cave doctrinally where you are caving ethically. Ethics go first, then doctrines typically follow. It's been the way of liberalism for a hundred years in our own country. I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm talking about just cultural Christianity kind of liberalism. You deny all sorts of biblical, ethical standards, and you begin to live a certain way that's contrary to the Bible, and lo and behold, you start doubting God. Tim Keller, who's just went to heaven this very week, um, often said when he had college students coming back to visit, and this isn't unique necessarily to college students at all, but college, be re- college students be wrestling with various ethical challenges, and they would, he would talk to them after the service. He'd say, hey, how are things going at so-and-so university? And they'd say, well... I'm really struggling to believe the Bible in certain ways, and I think, you know, that kind of stuff. And I don't know if Jesus is the only way of salvation anymore, and that doctrine of hell is kind of creepy and weird, and I, I don't think I believe that anymore. And the first thing that uh, Kim, Tim Keller was asked is, who are you sleeping with? And that's not always the case, but it frequently is. And so what... Tim was teaching us there, and I think what the Bible is teaching us is we shift morally and then we shift doctrinally. And I think David is experiencing some of that already here, and it's going to get full-blown in 2 Samuel. So watch over your life, dear ones. This is why 1 Timothy instructs pastors, keep watch over your life and your doctrine. Why does he say life first? Because life always messes with doctrine. If you see me start wavering doctrinally, if the pastors start seeing me wavering doctrinally, they should have a hunch that I'm probably wavering morally first. Now, that's not always the case. That's not always the case, but frequently it is. And Paul assumes it's the case in 1 Timothy. So notice how David begins in verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 1. He says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish. What's going on here? David seems to be speaking to himself and therefore he's listening to himself. The state of his heart is being largely shaped by what he is saying in his heart. What he's speaking to himself is undermining his confidence in God. It's running contrary both to what God has already told him in his word through his prophet, Samuel, and it runs contrary to his own experience as God has rescued him time and time and time again from the hand of Saul. But David has this tape running in his head. Saul's gonna kill you. And so he comes up with a plan. He's gonna go to Gath. Now, if you remember, he's previously visited there before at the very beginning when he was fleeing from Saul. And now he's going back into the land of the Philistines, into the land of Israel's enemies, into exile again. And now he's already been there before, and that didn't go too well, remember? Remember how he narrowly escaped back then? Well, nevertheless, he's going back because he's convinced that Saul is going to give up searching for him if he just gets out of Israel. And so he gets moving. And you know what? Saul stops pursuing. It worked. Problem solved, right? We read in verse 4, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Somebody ratted him out, said, here's where he is, and Saul didn't want to go to the Philistines. Well, we know that Saul's deathly afraid of the Philistines. We'll see more of that to come. But that was one of the reasons David, in his own ingenuity, thought, I'll just go there because I know Saul will never engage them. So David asked to set up shop in a nearby city called Ziklag um, when he meets with Achish. 
in Gath. And from there, David conducts raids on the traditional enemies of God's people, all while telling Achish that he is actually raiding Israel. Now, to avoid detection, David kills everyone so no one is able to inform Achish of what is really happening. We see this in chapter 27. And so in chapter 27, 12, we read a kind of summary statement. Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he'll always be my servant. His trust was so deep for David that he makes him his bodyguard for life at the beginning of chapter 28. Now, David is going to be getting a little bit more than he bargained for here, and we're going to see that, Lord willing, next week. It puts David in a little bit of a pickle, and Achish will eventually call on him to directly fight against Israel. Now, while the writer of Samuel doesn't give us an interpretation of David's actions here, he just says David said in his heart that he's going to go do this. So we shouldn't be overly dogmatic or suspicious. But I think it's clear that with the absence of Samuel from David's life, from his polygamy and his engagement in sexual sin, David is turning inward and beginning to listen to himself. He is, in a sense, taking matters into his own hands again, operating according to his own wisdom. What will get Saul off my back? How can I escape his grasp? What will cause him to give up his pursuit of me? And rather than focusing on what God has said and continuing to call on the Lord, David's relying on himself and his own military might to get to a place of felt safety and security. Now, part of this is completely understandable, right? I mean, let's put ourselves in David's shoes for a minute. David has been through the ringer, and he doesn't see it getting any better. So he looks to himself to relieve the pressure. I mean, some of that is understandable completely. But what does God think about what David is doing? Now, I'm helped by a take by Dale Ralph Davis, who's a commentator and pastor, who strikes, I think, a biblical balance between overly accusing David here and also completely letting him off the, cook, off the hook. So I want to quote him at, at length here. Here's what Dale Ralph Davis says. On the balance, I would say that the text is sympathetic to David's difficulty and yet presents him as in the wrong. I suggest that the record of God's repeated protection should have convinced David that God was able to keep him, even in Israel, And there seems to be a negative cast behind the human slaughter of David's raids. The writer himself tells us the rationale for human butchery was David's need to keep his front intact with Achish. Hence, I think that the text is both sympathetic to and critical of David. Now I want you to see this for yourself. Look at chapter 27 again. And let's read verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gersherites the Gerizites, or Gerizites and the Amalekites. These are all en- enemies of Israel. For these were, but they were also the enemies of the Philistines. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure as the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land, notice, would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. Verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah or against the Negeb of the Jeremiahites or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, David, so David has done. So was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Now the writer here, I think, by repeating himself twice, 
saying David's wiping everybody out, David's wiping everybody out, is showing that David's not right to be doing that. Remember, this is the way the kings of the nations behave. They don't engage in just war. They kill innocent people. And this is what David is doing. Now, we could say, are these people enemies? David's operating as a king of Israel, protecting it from its enemies. Yeah, but he's going way too far. He's, and, and we're given the reason why he's doing it. He's doing it to cover himself, to make sure that nobody comes back and reports on him that he was there or doing this or that or telling on him. So David's in sin here. It's, it wasn't wrong for him necessarily to engage Israel's enemies, but the way he's going about doing it and the reasons, his motives behind why he's doing it are wrong. Now, what are we to learn from this text regarding listening to ourselves? Well, dear ones, I think you would agree that we're more formed by our society than we realize. We assume things to be true of the world simply because that's what everyone else seems to think. On the most pernicious and pervasive forms of this deception, we see this taking place in our culture in the pseudo-religion of what has been called expressive individualism. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, by expressive individualism, one writer explains that it's a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. So the individualism piece is, I get to define reality and identity for myself. The expressive piece is, you must acknowledge it. And agree with it. And support it. And champion it. It's captured in slogans like, you be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. The key here is that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world, forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or religious authorities might say. So it's very common in our culture to listen to our heart, to say in our heart, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Now, what's the fallout of that for David? Well, first of all, when we listen to ourselves, we will be tempted to look for security elsewhere. Our thoughts will invariably push us away from God and push us into ourselves, calling us to live by sight and not by faith. I remember Taylor Swift was being interviewed at one point, and she was asked, what was kind of the key to you kind of rescue, getting out of some mental health struggles you were having and into kind of wholeness and wellness and well-being? She said, when I realized that I am my own redemption. That I am my own solution. Dear ones, that's fearful. If you are your own problem and you are your own solution, how's that going to go? Now, while our inner, voice, inner voices often accentuate our weaknesses, as we ob- observe with a tape running in our mind, our inner voice will also counsel us to trust the wisdom of our own minds, to confirm the rightness of our own motives, call us to lean into our own native strengths, abilities, and opportunities. And this is the greater danger. For our inner voice will not only tempt us to be hard on ourselves, but also to be committed to ourselves. And all of this is anti-God thinking because it's governed by the flesh. Romans 8 says the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. 
David was talking to himself, and what he kept saying in his heart set the direction for his actions. See, what we say to ourselves and what we keep saying to ourselves will direct our lives. All of us, daily, moment by moment, are engaging in propaganda of the soul. We are telling ourselves who we are, what our security is, where are we to find hope. Now, what did the farmer say to himself repeatedly in the parable of Luke 12 that Jesus warned us about? He built bigger and bigger barns, securing a larger and larger next egg. And then he said, soul, you have ample goods stored up for a long time. In other words, his heart told him, you're fine. Look at all this that you have. Rest easy. We know how that went. He died that night. So when we listen to ourselves, we're tempted to look for security elsewhere, and that's a great danger. Secondly, when we listen to ourselves, we might very well succeed in all the worst kind of ways. When we listen to ourselves, we might very well succeed. You will succeed and waste it and miss it. Chapter 27 is fascinating. David's plans actually work. He thought, if I go to Philistia, Saul will stop looking for me. And you know what happened? Saul stopped looking for him. Now, I'm sure David and his 600 men, along with their wives and families, enjoyed their first peaceful night's sleep in months. Gath and Ziklag aren't Israel, but it sure beats living in a cave for months on end, doesn't it? But as Proverbs 14:12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So what will happen when Achish asks David to fight Israel with him in chapter 29? Short-term thinking. Quick fix thinking. Got to get out of this now. Not thinking about the repercussions of what is to come. Dear ones, that will get you in a world of trouble. Quick fixes without long-term thinking of where this trajectory will take me. What will happen, but think about it this way also. What will happen when God fulfills his promise to make David the new king of Israel? What will become of the Philistine rage when they find out they were deceived by a traitor in their midst? A traitor who pretended to be loyal, lied about it, and gathered intelligence against them. How's that going to go? You see how David just led Israel into another war with the Philistines that did not have to happen? Because he was the instigator and the informant? It's one thing for you to send a spy. It's another thing for your king to be one. It's dangerous. that He's putting Israel at risk. He may realize later on that Saul was a cakewalk compared to what the Philistines are going to have in store for him. Beloved, the key lesson here is listening to ourselves can take us farther than we want to go, cost us more than we're willing to pay, and keep us longer than we're willing to stay. Don't listen to your tape. Don't trust your own reasoning. Instead of listening to ourselves, we need to talk to ourselves. We need to gospel ourselves. We need to defy ourselves by believing God is doing something in and through us that we can't see. Don't press pause on your tape. Press eject, remove the tape, drop it on the ground, and crush it under the heel of Christ. Turning inward and listening to yourself is not the only option you have for guidance. Sadly, it's not even the most terrible option. There's another option which can be equally as bad as listening to ourselves. And that's what we see in Saul secondly looking around and listening to others. Looking around and listening to others as we see in Saul. 
Now, picking up in chapter 26, verse, or 27, or 20, sorry, 28, verse 3, we are told that Samuel is dead. A Philistine threat is mounting against Israel, and Saul is afraid. Look at chapter 28, verses 4 and 5. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. David turned inward because of his fear of Saul. Saul turns outward because of his fear of the Philistines. Here's the lesson. Fear usually is the first indicator that we are out of fellowship with God. When we are surrendered to God, we have confidence in the fact that he'll provide for our needs. We're less worried about what everyone else thinks because we're living for his approval. We're less worried about death or tragedy because we know not one hair falls from our head apart from his knowledge. But when we strip ourselves of that by relying on ourselves or others to give us the security that God alone provides, then we live with fear and anxiety. So where will Saul turn? Is he going to look in? No, he's going to look out. Look at verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, good first step, Saul, the Lord did not answer him. Bad news, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Now, what's that Urim statement? So just a little quick Bible word lesson here. So if you're familiar with the priesthood in the Old Testament, they, they wore on their vest something that was called the Urim and the Thummim. Think of it as two rocks that had different indications of God's will on them. And when uh, they were seeking the priesthood and what they should do, and they would, they would take out these two things and they would throw them on the ground, and however they landed and turned up, that would be guidance. So the Urim might say no, the Thummim said no, okay, no, don't do that. So it was a way of casting a lot, think of casting lots in the New Testament, kind of things like that. So, again, that's not a lesson of how we're to seek guidance now. We don't have an Old Testament priesthood. We're all priests in Christ's kingdom, so it's, it's different now. But in those days, God communicated by dreams. He communicated through the pro- priesthood in that way, and he communicated by the prophets and the words that they would give specifically. Now, Saul's impulse is really good here to look up to the Lord, but the results aren't. And he should know he wouldn't be heard because God has told him ten times already that his kingdom's gone. But nevertheless, we are once again reminded, as we were in chapter 16, that the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul, and God is not answering his prayers or giving him guidance through any of the normal means, dreams, prophets, or priesthood. So where does Saul seek guidance? Through others, especially those who can offer him the spiritual guidance God is not giving him. So look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. So he does it by seeking out mediums. Now, a medium is someone who attempts to communicate with spirits. Think of a fortune teller or a horoscope writer or a necromancer. Well, he uses the word necromancer here. Necromancer is someone who attempts to contact the dead. So now we're told in verse 7 that Saul had previously put such people out of the land as he should have done, because God forbade such approaches to spirituality. God had forbidden the pagan practices of seeking supernatural power and guidance apart from him. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, like a pagan sacrifice. 
Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations, which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. And as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So Saul is in direct defiance of God's commands. Leviticus 19.31, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, what do we make of mediums? Why do people go to mediums? Well, dear ones, when we cut ourselves off from the presence and protection of God, like Saul has, we look to other things to fill the role of the divine in our lives. We don't become less spiritual the more secular we get. We become more spiritual. For, our exam- for an example, studies show that as participation in organized religion in our own country has gone down in our, in, in, our, in our own society, superstitious practices, things like the use of tarot cards, crystals, amulets, palm reading, energy balancing, have all gone up. And the more irreligious a person describes themselves, the more likely they are to be very superstitiously spiritual. It probably won't surprise you that the, that the most superstitious in America is Hollywood, which is known as the religious. Superstitious and occult practice are crazy because she says, quote, I know for a fact that it's not in my destiny to die listening to a Britney Spears album, so I always play that when I'm flying. Now that might actually have some merit. Most people probably won't die listening to a Britney Spears album, although listening to Britney Spears has been linked to a death in musical taste. The point is, sorry, Britney Spears fans. You can hit me, baby, one more time after the service. The point is, we are created for a connection to the divine. And when God no longer deserves that role in our lives, we search for the supernatural through some kind of mysticism. If you don't believe me, you need to pick up a book called Strange Rites by Tara Isabella Burton and read it. She's not a Christian. She's a social analyst. But she has done her homework, and she has recorded some fascinating observations. That with the shift away from institutional religion, what has taken its place is not irreligion, but intuitional religion. Self-made spirituality has taken the place of organized religion of any sort. She writes, A religion of emotive intuition, of self-creation and self-improvement has taken place of institutional religion. A religion decoupled from institutions, from creeds, from truth claims about God or the universe or the way things are, but that still seeks in various and varying ways to provide us with the pillars of what religion always has, meaning, purpose, community, ritual. At the top of Amazon.com's bestseller list right now is Soul Boom by Rain Wilson, Why We Need a Spiritual Reawakening. Now, Rain Wilson, Dwight Schrute of office fame, um, is a follower of Baha'iism. 
But, and there's many things that he recognizes that are true about our culture in terms of its political polarization and the unhealthy ways in which it attacks the family and all sorts of things. But he's going to be a, a, a pluralist. He's going to recognize Jesus as a good moral teacher, even at believing him when he said he's God, but he's not the fullest expression of God. There's others that have come along. And so he's going to be just your common kind of plural. But there's a reason that book, that he felt compelled to write it. And there's a reason that it's at the top of the Amazon. And it's not just because everybody loves the office, although I'm sure people he's using that, as, and he should, to leverage for his own faith tradition and the ways he wants to advance um, his concerns about meaning and purpose and community uh, in, the, in the culture. But it just all goes to show us that we're not nearly as secular as we think we are. Christianity's competition, then, is not primarily other religions or cults but it's all these pseudo-religions of the intuitional variety. There's the gospel of wellness and the explosion of communities united around wellness. There's the gospel of self-care where options are available for people who need new lotions and potions and meditation apps accompanied by all the language of energy and toxins and positivity with the help of expensive supplements sold by your favorite Instagram influencer, so don't forget to use the promo code at checkout. There's also the Silicon Valley techno-utopians and the alt-right. Consider how political involvement functions for many people as a substitute religion with its devotion to the saviors of Capitol Hill, evangelism for the leaders and the cause, and political rallies that function like worship services, with many claiming that they're taking the country back for God, but you'll never see them in church on a Sunday. That's what the stats say. We could also point to the resurgence of New Age thought, Wiccan spirituality, social justice, and the sexual revolution, adopted by people who base their identity on their sexuality, complete with a conversion testimony in the ritual of coming out, which is a kind of baptism, publicly declaring one's identity and allegiance, as well as joining a church family called the LGBTQ community. It's just religion in a different dress. But beloved, there's a better way. Look up and listen to God. What Samuel says. Make God the center of your life and the source of your identity and the object of your joy. Isaiah 8, 9. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So what happens as a result of Saul's consultation with the medium? Well, he successfully contacts the dead on behalf of the living. Saul asked the medium of Endor to bring Samuel back from the dead. Now, just a note. This is not the same Endor as the Ewoks in Star Wars were from. That's a different Endor altogether. Okay. Although we're not sure if the Ewoks conducted medium seances or contacted necromancers. That could have been the reason they were so annoying. We don't know. In verse 8, as Paul goes, on, goes in disguised like a Jedi Knight to meet... The medium. The medium responds, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? 
wait a second. What kind of medium can see the future, but she can't see through the costume of a guy in front of her? Hmm. Some sorcerers have genuine demonic power, especially those trained at Hogwarts. And I don't want to make light of that, but a lot of these people just are fakes and charlatans who are out to relieve gullible people of their money. And that seems to be what the medium at Endor is doing. She's quite surprised that anything is happening. And her predictions and her advice tend to be pretty fortune cookie-esque in their specificity, don't they? But back to the story. To the medium's own terror, she appears to succeed. Look at chapter 28 and verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. Now you know where that whole superstition about God, the old man wrapped in a robe idea comes from. It comes from the devil. (laughs) And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, I know this introduces all kinds of questions to us. How can this person contact Samuel? How can Samuel, he's in heaven, he's already dead. How can he come back and appear and what's going on here? Well, we're not anti-supernaturalist in the Bible or in our church. We understand that God can do what he wants with whom he wants. And we know that this isn't the first time people who have been in heaven have come back down to earth. Remember the transfiguration in Matthew 17? Moses and Elijah are there. So God sovereignly permitted Samuel to go back and engage with the creation in this way. And Samuel just reinforces exactly what he told them while he was on the earth, what he told Saul. Your kingdom's gone. Give it up. Quit calling on God. He's left you. You blew it. So I don't think we need to wonder, is this true or is it? No, it's true. It happened. Scripture records it. It's not presented as any sort of wives' tale or myth or, you know, some sort of bizarre thing that hallucination happened and all of a sudden Saul and this medium, ceased. they think they see Samuel. It's not Samuel. The, the text presents it as Samuel. That Samuel really came. But he offers no additional guidance nor hopeful guidance to Saul at all. Saul gets a word from the prophet of God, but it's the same word he heard when Samuel was alive. Samuel simply restates with a renewed intensification the same word that Saul heard previously. And dear ones, this is exactly what we need. We don't need new revelation. We don't need to get in touch with who we are. We don't need to look around and figure out what everybody else is doing and conform our lives to that. We need to go back and see what God has been saying to us for thousands of years. This is who you are. This is why you're here. This is how to be redeemed. This is what it means to follow me. This is what life in my kingdom is like. We just need to go back to the old paths where you'll find life. We don't need a new word from God. We We just need to go back to the word he's already given us. Live in the Bible, dear ones, beloved of God. Live in the scriptures. Let it shape your thinking about yourself and your purpose and who you are and why you're here. 
everybody is out to define reality for you. Social media, the news, everybody. And we should be informed about that stuff. We don't need to bury our heads in the sand. But some of you have buried your heads in the sand to the point that you never bury your head in the Bible. And you are so burying your head in the sand because you are living horizontally apart from a vertical definition of reality that will fill your life with meaning, hope, and joy. And therefore, the next wave of news that comes, I'm down again. And you're just carried along by the fear-based narratives of our culture instead of anchoring yourself in the hope of the God who has revealed himself. So let's go back to the word. People can consult others, be they mediums or seances or read horoscopes because they want a word of reassurance. Their future's going to be okay. I got to catch the news tonight. I got to make sure my future's going to be okay. Here's the good news, dear one. You who are desperate for a word of reassurance from the dead already got one. A man has come back from the dead and declared, you, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be with you always, even to the very end of the age. You don't have to seek a word of reassurance from the dead elsewhere or from the living. You've got it from the once dead, now living, ever reigning Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a ghost. He didn't come to us through a medium. He's the God-man who's been resurrected from the dead and His presence is always with you. In Christ, you have the ongoing presence of the greatest loved one you could ever have who loves you more deeply than the most deeply departed family member or friend. We have the greater prophet who has returned from the grave, far greater than Samuel who's just going to go back to heaven. But this prophet has come back from the grave ever to live and speak to us and make intercession for us as our high priest. He's God's beloved eternal son. Let's listen to him. Look at verse 16 of chapter 28. Here's where we'll conclude. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? You know, it's one thing to have Saul as your enemy like David did that caused him to look in and flee into the land of the Philistines. It's another thing to have the Philistines as your enemy, like Saul did, which caused him to seek out a medium and a necromancer. It's another thing to have God as your enemy, which is what Saul ultimately has. And since birth, outside of a relationship with Christ, none of us have never had Saul or the Philistines hunting us down. But we've all been enemies of God. Some of us in this room still are. But here's the good news. Jesus is our peace. And the battle is over. We who were once enemies of God have been reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. And whomever else we may love and whatever else we may fear, there is nothing better than having a reconciled God Have your back and at your side all of your days. I don't think it can get better than that. I don't think it can get better than looking up. You're immortal. You're invincible because your identity is not found in yourself, which is why we have to fight so hard in culture to get people to like us because it's so flimsy. Please like me. I can't feel whole without you liking me. That is an insecure way to build your life. Don't do that. 
You have to keep surrounding yourself with yes men and yes women to affirm your identity? Why is your identity so malleable and so prone to be taken away? And dear ones, we can all do that, whether we're finding our identity in ourselves or our jobs. Oh, what am I going to do when I retire? I don't have an identity anymore. Or what am I going to do when my kids grow up? I'm not a mom anymore. And we get all these identity kinds of things built in to seasons of life that change. And therefore, we're just carried away by the waves instead of anchoring ourselves to the Christ who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Seasons come, seasons go, but Christ never changes. Let's anchor ourselves to him on Christ, the solid rock we stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time in your word this morning. Thank you for this corrective word for us regarding where we look for guidance and how we oftentimes allow fear just to motivate us to look to what other people will say or seek some reassurance outside of you or look even within ourselves to try to fix things. And Lord, all the while you stand there with the word that you've always spoken that's never changed, that's firmly fixed in the heavens. And uh, we can go there and we pray that you would draw us back there even this day, this week, this month, this year that we would live upon your word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. May we feast on your word individually together, reminding each other of it when we forget. And uh, may this just be the beginning of of a renewed love for and devotion to what you have spoken, that we might be anchored in your truth and guided safely home to heaven freed from all the tyranny of ourself and others that would seek to shape our lives according to things that are not God's. We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name and for your glory. Have mercy on us, Lord. Amen.